1: and I am an Enfield World History candidate at the University of Cambridge. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Kung Chenwen. Dr. Kung is an assistant professor at the National University of Singapore. Born and raised in Singapore, he was a history and English student at Dartmouth College, taught A-level Southeast Asian history in Singapore before graduating with a PhD in modern Chinese and international and global history from Columbia University. His research travels the views of Chinese migration and diaspora, the Cold War and Decolonization in Southeast Asia, and modern China and Taiwan in the world. Today, we are discussing Qian Wen's latest publication, Diasporic Cold Warriors, Nationalist China, Anti-Communism, and the Philippine Chinese, 1930s to 1970s, published by the Cornell University Press in 2022. Diasporic Cold Warriors explains how the Chinese Nationalist Party, or the Kuomintang, sought the seeds of anti-communism among the Philippine Chinese with the active participation of the Philippine state. Beginning from the somewhat surprising finding that the Philippine Chinese were Southeast Asia's most exemplary code warriors among overseas Chinese between the 1950s and 1970s. The book tells the story of the Philippine Chinese as pro-Taiwan, anti-communist partisans, tracing the evolving rela- relationship with the KMT and successive Philippine governments over the mid-20th century. Diasporic Code Warriors is jam-packed with archival gems that Chen Wen has excavated from archives in China, Hong Kong, the Philippines, Taiwan, Singapore, and the US. It is a book that is as rich as it is insightful, leaving far too many thoughts and questions that would fit the length of an interview here, but we shall endeavour to go through as much of the book as we can. Hi Dr. Kong, welcome to the show. As is traditional on the New Books Network, let me begin by asking about the story behind the research, writing, as well as the completion of Diasporic Code Warriors. So I understand that the book began as your PhD dissertation at Columbia. So this obviously must have been a project of many years. Could you share with our listeners how you came to this project and also perhaps how the project evolved throughout graduate school and after you graduated from Columbia?
0: Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me, Ben. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Uh, so I started off my PhD all the way back in the depths of, of history as someone who wanted to write about transnational anti-communist networks. I was part of uh, Columbia's International and Global History PhD program, right? so that and some of that, as you can see, is in the final product. Right uh, in the course of Graduate school, however, I developed an interest in the in the histories of modern China and Taiwan, uh, the histories of the Cold War, obviously, and and the histories of uh, Chinese communities overseas. And I was looking for a dissertation topic that would sort of tick all these these boxes. Uh, I started off right. My Ph.D. looking at an organization called the Asian People's Anti-Communist League, which still makes a cameo in Chapter five of the book. Uh, as I read more primary sources, I, you know, I found lots of, you know, references to the the Chinese in the Philippines as the most ardent supporters of the Kuomintang in in Southeast Asia, possibly the world, and uh, I quickly realized as well that there was very little secondary scholarship on this. Right. I think it helped that that I had an advisor, or my my first advisor in in graduate school was Adam McKeon. Right. A, I mean, the late Adam McKeown, who was a historian of, of Chinese migrations and, and diaspora. Uh, I also worked with historians of the Cold War and, and modern China. And I think all these sort of diverse uh, intellectual currents have, have gone into the writing of this book. Uh, so the, the dissertation, I completed my PhD in 2018. Right, uh, I did revise the dissertation uh, somewhat uh in the you know in the period from about 2019 to to 21 and what i essentially did was to write an additional chapter right which is chapter one of the book that was not part of the dissertation i also took out chapter seven of the dissertation and turned that into a separate article right which is in fact just come out in the international uh, history review Uh, otherwise it was a case of you know trying to figure out what what uh, my main arguments were going to, were going to be, uh, given that, you know, the book again is, is something that I think will, will speak to scholars in, in different fields. Uh, it was about having sort of a, a strong central narrative, uh, a key set of themes that would sort of drive the, the book forward. Um, but that was the extent of revisions, uh, and, and that was the process of transforming the dissertation into a book.
1: So I think what really piqued my interest actually was that this is a study of the KMT in the Philippines uh, during the Cold War. So I guess my question is, did you start out with the Philippines in mind? And if so, kind of like, what led you in that direction? Because there's many parts of the Cold War in, in Southeast Asia that could have been studied. Uh, why, why the Philippines specifically?
0: Right. So a couple of reasons. Uh, one was that... Again, as I mentioned previously, I just came across all these sources, right? Uh, All these sources by, you know, sort of Republic of China officials, uh, persons affiliated with the Kuomintang, right? All these sources said, seemed to say the same thing, which was that, you know, the Philippines, the Philippine Chinese are the most, are the most, outspoken supporters of the Republic of China on Taiwan, right? Um, And I wondered, why was this the case, right? How did this particular configuration uh, emerge, right? Uh, It was also pretty obvious from early early on that compared to, say, other Southeast Asian countries, uh, the Chinese communities in, say, Malaya or, or Indonesia, right? The Chinese community in the Philippines had received far less scholarly attention. So there was a sense in which I... Uh, was doing pioneering work and did not have to engage uh, as closely, I guess you could say, with, with uh, comparable works uh, in the field, right? I had more freedom, I guess you could say, to sort of um, define my work uh, in, in, in uh, whatever direction and, and, move, and, and move in whatever directions I, I saw fit. I was less constrained by, by what uh, other scholars um, had said. Uh, And I also quickly realized that there was a lot of material right uh, out there, uh, material that was relatively accessible, um, not just in Taiwan, but uh, also in, in the Philippines itself.
1: Yeah, and I think it really shows just from the range of archives you cite. So you cite archives from China, Hong Kong, the Philippines, Taiwan, Singapore, the U.S., and even some digital archives as well. Um, and I think the arguments in the book also is really wide ranging as well. And I like like I like to now move on to discussing the book properly a little bit more. So in the introduction, I think you make several points that. I think it's actually really important for future scholarship that I would like to pick on as a kind of a starting point, but perhaps, perhaps as a bit of a primer for our listeners who may not be too familiar uh, with the KMT and the ROC, maybe could I first ask you to maybe just share with us, what is the difference between the KMC, the ROC, as well as the relationship between the different branches of the KMT, so the one in Taiwan, the Philippines, Malaya and so on?
0: Right, right, That's a that's a great question. Uh, I mean, we, we tend to use the terms, you know, KMT, Nationalist China, and, and Republic of China um, interchangeably, uh, but there are, I think, important differences here. So the KMT, the Guomindang, the Chinese Nationalist Party, right, began as a revolutionary organization, right, in the late, uh, late 19th century, right. It began as a revolutionary organization that was banned by the the Qing state, right? An organization whose supporters uh, were drawn to no small extent from uh, overseas Chinese, right? In in Malaya, in Southeast Asia, and and other parts of the world. Uh, This revolutionary organization, right, uh, would eventually uh, become a, a political party, right? And in 1927, uh, this political party came to power uh, in China uh, for the first time, right? Uh, this, by this point in time, the, polit- the party, of course, was led by, by Chiang Kai-shek, right? Uh, this party then, and then this is how the, this is how the so-called Nanjing decade begins. The Nanjing decade of the Republican period begins. Uh, this party is then, or this party state, Right. Is then defeated in a civil war from 1946 to 49 and relocates to the island of, of Taiwan. Although, of course, it's it has jurisdiction over a number of other territories as well, besides just the island of Taiwan itself. Right. Uh, and, and that's the party state uh, that I am, you know, that I am chiefly focused on. Right. Although there is uh, a section of my book that focuses on on the party state before uh, 1949, right? Uh, the, so the, uh, the Guomindang in the Philippines, right, again, is a political organization, a revolutionary organization, going back all the way to the, to the early 19th century, right? Although the period that I'm really interested in is sort of the, the period from the 1930s onwards. Uh, this is an organization, uh, comprising again, um, persons from the, the Filipino Chinese community, right? Uh, it's an organization that uh, is connected to, is very much connected to from the 1930s onwards, is very much connected to the Republic of China uh, state, right? Uh, and to the and to the party in in China or after 1949 in, in, in Taiwan, right? Uh, in that the, the going down branches in the Philippines, again, are, part of a sort of a larger transnational hierarchy, right? On paper, at least, they're meant to answer to the Central Committee or the Central Executive Committee or the Central Committee, which is based in the capital, which whatever the capital of of the Republic of China happens to be uh, at the time, right? So in in, in theory, on paper, these branches of the Guomidang in the Philippines are answerable to Nanjing uh, or to, to Taipei. Uh, But in reality, of course, right, these organizations enjoy a certain degree of autonomy uh, from the so-called center, right? Uh, And much of what goes on in the Philippines, of course, uh, has to do with the Guomidai activists and um, members on the ground, right, in the Philippines. Persons oftentimes with with close ties to to the Philippine-Chinese community, right, persons whom I, I, you know, one might describe as transnational or or translocal, right, Uh, persons who, to varying degrees, right, are are committed to mobilizing the Chinese in the Philippines in support of the Republic of China, right, in support of uh, whatever ideology the Kuomintang in in China or Taiwan happens to be advocating at at a particular point in time, right, and that's, I think, an important, how I think we should understand the, the Kuomintang, right? Not simply as the party state in China or in Taiwan, but as a networked, uh, no, transnational, translocal organization with branches not just in, in the Philippines, right? Uh, but, but, but globally um, as well.
1: Yeah, I think this idea of understanding the KMT as a network transnational, translocal organisation was, for me, really quite interesting. Um, And kind of like the question I had here is, you know, what does it mean to think about the KMT transnationally? And of course, one of the ways in which you, you did this was through looking at the activities of the Philippine KMT in mobilising the Chinese, as well as kind of the interactions with uh, Taiwan uh, and, and the central branch. But I guess in relation to this... um. You know, perhaps for future scholars what are some ways in which you might think about the KMT transnationally as well?
0: Sure. well so my goal in sort of calling attention to the transnational uh, transnational dimensions of, of the KMT is really meant again to to sort of um, challenge to to build on and to to, uh, to challenge and to build on scholarship on modern China right? Uh, this scholarship tends to be fairly territorialized, right? That to the extent that historians of modern China, again, a field that I am that I sort of come out from, right, are interested in the KMT. They are interested in what the, the party got up to in China in the 1930s, from the 1930s onwards, right? So there are lots of books, which I read in, in graduate school, on the various sort of social engineering schemes implemented by the Nanjing government in the 1930s. There are books on the you know the right-wing ideology of the the Kuomintang uh, during this period, right? Uh, and and you could say the same thing about um, what the Kuomintang gets up to in in Taiwan, right? After uh, nineteen forty nine. But so my my goal is really to sort of shine the spotlight on the Kuomintang as more than just an organization uh, that was interested in in China, right? It was that was you know that was the the Kuomintang's main uh, overarching project during this entire period which was, was to unite China uh, but the organization as I point out in the book was very much aware of itself as uh, an organization that had come out of uh, whose histories uh, whose history is, is very much embedded in in the histories of these overseas Chinese uh, communities and and that I think helps us you know not just think about uh, the Guomidang differently, but but what it means to speak of this thing that we call China. Right? How can we think of China in terms of more than just territory, but in term and not just in terms of territorialized spaces, but in terms of, of networks, right? And I think this is kind of what Chinese migration historians have been trying to do. But again, Chinese migration historians, to the extent they're interested in networks, are have not focused on on political organizations or or, or and and on political networks. Uh, their focus has largely been on migration networks, right, uh, on business uh, networks, as opposed to sort of these these political networks. And so I, I hope that the book sort of can help uh, scholars working on modern China broaden their, their horizons. Um, I mean, I, I do think that this is actually important going forward, uh, given that and we can maybe talk about this later on down the road, uh, given that you know, archives in China are becoming increasingly difficult to, to access, right? And that increasingly, I think, to do research on China means looking at uh, traces and spaces of Chinese influence beyond sort of the territorialized boundaries of China themselves, right? Uh, not just in Taiwan, but in, in other parts of the so-called um, Sinophone world.
1: In describing the relationship between the KMT and the Philippine government, uh, you made use of political theory Stephen Kressner's concept of shared sovereignty. Uh, Could you share with our listeners how you developed this concept and also why is it useful in describing the relationship between the KMT uh, and the Philippine governments?
0: Sure, yeah. So shared sovereignty is uh, a concept that I came across, right, uh, in the in the course of trying to look for a nice way of framing this particular relationship. So I began by using the term, I began by framing this relationship. And and this again, came out of my reading of primary sources and sort of Filipino critiques uh, of the It came out of sort of this, this debate on on neocolonialism. So that was what I began, uh, that was the term that I used initially to to frame this relationship. Uh, I submitted a draft of one of my of my introduction and one of my chapters to to one of my advisors, uh, Caroline Howe, and she wrote back to say to critique my use of this concept and suggested that it was, you know, this this concept is problematic and that perhaps you can look beyond this term. Uh, neocolonialism, of course, is a is a widely used term in histories of the Philippines, right? It's a term that that gets used to describe what the Kuomintang uh, did in, in Taiwan, right? Uh, from 1945 onwards, Um, and the more I thought about Carol's feedback, the more it it began to make sense, right, the more I realized that this was not a relationship between unequal entities, or entities, uh, this was rather a relationship between relatively equal entities, and that they were uh, very much... Uh, rely using each other in order to advance um, particular goals, right? Uh, so I, I ditched the the neo-colonialism as a as a framework, and that led me to to you know, this idea of, of shared sovereignty. Um, uh, this idea, the idea of body based sovereignty, that also goes into to how I understand this 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 relationship, right? And and really, this has to do with how the Republic of China, right, on Taiwan was not an especially powerful uh, state uh, at the time and was only able to exert influence, such significant influence over the Philippine Chinese with the consent and participation of, of Manila, uh, with the, of the Philippines um, itself, right? Uh, the The comparisons that I make in the course of the book, I think i I think are meant to reinforce this idea that well, first of all, that the that the Philippines is a unique site with which to think about sort of Kuomintang influence, and to think about the ways in which Kuomintang influence is contingent upon, right, there being favorable conditions on the ground and the willingness, as I, as I said, of, of the Philippine authorities to allow the Kuomintang to operate, um, freely, right. So that's how I ended up uh, with this with this concept of, uh, of shared sovereignty and how it you know has come to sort of frame, uh. The, the relationship between the two states right, uh, in the book.
1: Right, turning our attention now uh, to the first chapter, and I think we'll, uh, we'll also discuss a bit more about shared sovereignty as we go through the uh, material in the book. Um, the first chapter really discusses this idea of how the KMT um, established itself uh, in the Philippines before 1942. So I was wondering if you could walk us through some of the challenges that the Philippine KMT faced in establishing itself, and what were some of the strategies that they deployed uh, in order to kind of establish themselves before World War II happened?
0: Sure. So again, the KMT, you know, the KMT in the Philippines, its history goes back to the, to the early 20th century, right? Uh, the period that I focus on in, in chapter one is the 1930s, right? And this is a period during which of course the uh, the, the United Front between the, the KMT and the CCP in China has broken down, right? The two uh, political parties of course are are, are at odds uh, with each other um, during this period. Uh, this is a period during which the, again, the Guomindang the, the comes to power in, in the Philippines right, during the Nanjing decade and seeks to institutionalize uh, overseas Chinese affairs, right? There's a much more concerted, systematic, although, you know, again, not necessarily a full-blown effort to sort of coordinate overseas Chinese policy, right, and to mobilize uh Overseas Chinese in support of again of, of nation building at home, uh, in support of the the war against uh, Japan, right? Uh, that you know that begins in, in 1937 or in, in 1931, right? And so it's this period that I focus on the period leading the period leading up to the outbreak of the Second World War, uh, or more specifically the the Japanese occupation of the Philippines, and of course. It's during this period that uh, the KMT in the Philippines comes into conflict with um, Chinese leftists, right? Chinese leftists who have fled persecution uh, in China, right, and who have, uh, and in doing so, have ended up in in Southeast Asia, right. And those are the tensions that I sort of um, talk about in chapter one. I, I also talk about. of internal disputes right within within the within the chinese community during this period uh and how the kmt itself in the philippines not unlike the kmt in in china right is is factionalized right so it's by no means inevitable it's by no means clear at this point in time right who's going to come out on top right which kmt faction is going to come up on top especially as kmt activists are arriving in the islands um from China, right? KMT activists again, who are part, you know, who, who belong to sort of different different factions of the party in in China itself, right? Uh, and and that's that brings us up, of course, to the to the Japanese occupation, where the the KMT and the uh, Chinese leftists, right, form sort of different uh, anti anti Japanese guerrilla organizations. They sort of temporarily put aside their their. Uh, whatever disagreements they might have had, right, uh, for the sake, again, of, of pursuing, uh, of, of resisting the the Japanese. So there's a sense in which, if you focus on these sets of political relationships, right, there's a sense in which what's going on in the Philippines resembles, right, it's not identical to, but resembles what's going on in uh, in China, right? And then, of course, the war comes to an end. And again, the two sides go back to Hating each other and struggling against each other.
1: Actually, towards the end of the chapter, you do make reference to the CCP, and you noted that you know the CCP had difficulties of their own uh, in mobilizing support within the Philippines. Um, and you also mentioned this idea of you know the laissez-faire approach of the US towards the overseas Chinese in the Philippines, and how that kind of like. Uh, maybe gave the KMT some free reign and perhaps some structural advantages that they weren't able to make use of before World War II so I was wondering if you could perhaps speak to these two factors so kind of like the CCP in the Philippines why was it that they weren't able quite quite able to garner the sport and right. what role did the US play in this yeah
0: right well well. so the strategies of diaspora mobilisation on the part of the CCP or Chinese left more generally right Uh, As compared to the KMT are are quite different in that the KMT was focused on mobilizing persons of Chinese descent right in support of the national government's um, political project right Uh, conversely and uh, if you look at sort of Chinese left-wing activists in the islands these activists were a lot more concerned about building ties between Themselves and local Filipino leftists, right? They're much more interested in entering into uh, alliances with uh, with the Hukbalahap, right? With the Philippine uh, Communist Party, right? And again, relations between sort of Chinese leftists and Filipino leftists isn't exactly uh, straightforward. Although, again, that's not really the the focus of, uh, of my book, right? Uh, I do argue that that the KMT is advantaged in a number of ways um i mean the u.s you know the u.s u.s rule is yeah it's opposed to it's very much opposed to 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 communism right um there are instances of you know uh, operations against so-called leftists uh, prior to the war although it's harder i think to find uh, source material uh, on these uh, on these sort of anti chinese operations right um but what's really crucial in the context of the Philippines is that the United States, that by 1935, which is when the Philippines becomes sort of a self-governing commonwealth, right? The Philippine, the Philippine elites have come around to understanding Filipino citizenship in a, part, in, in a, in a particular way, right? They've come to understand uh, citizenship in terms of blood, Rather than in terms of where you were born, right, and 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 this is reflected in the 1939 uh, revised naturalization law, which makes it really difficult for aliens in the Philippines to secure uh, Filipino citizenship, right. So there's a sense during the, throughout the throughout the U.S. period that the Chinese become increasingly Right. Come increasingly re- to resemble a, a foreign community, as opposed to a community again which has had ties to the uh, to the islands for for centuries, right? Over the course of years, through the Chinese, increasingly are increasingly constructed as a foreign community that um, is only capable of naturalizing, right? in which we 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 aren't particularly interested in naturalizing, right? Which is why we have all these obstacles, right? uh, in place to inhibit naturali naturalization. Right. And so once you, you have a community that, you know, elites and, and the legal system have marked as foreign, it then becomes easier to, you know, to let other external States manage this particular community. Oh. And I, of course I, I should say here that, uh, that the Republic of China's nationality law is itself grounded in the principle of usanguinis sanguinis or blood right, And what it effectively means on paper is that anyone of Chinese descent, regardless of where this person has been born is or can be a quote unquote Chinese national, right? So in other parts of Southeast Asia, this becomes problematic, but as it turns out in the Philippines, these, Understanding Filipino understandings of nationality and Republic of China understandings of nationality sort of converge, right? And so this is the important uh, sort of legal and political groundwork that the, that is laid during the colonial period which, again, enables the, the KMT uh, to achieve a certain degree of hegemony um, subsequently.
1: I'd like now to look at uh, chapter two of the book um, and I think, so chapter two, there's a bit of a, temporal gap between the two chapters with in World War Two. So maybe as a first question here, um, could you maybe briefly walk us through kind of what happened in the Japanese occupation of the Philippines? It's a lot, but maybe like the parts that's a bit more um necessary for us for the for the, for our readers, as well as um how the question of collaboration figured in the minds mm-hmm. and the politics of the Chinese community um right. in the Philippines, both during the occupation as well as in this immediate aftermath, because it seems to me that the question of who was a collaborator was one that the KMT and also to some extent the CCP and the Chinese left kind of expounded upon after the war.
0: Yeah, so the... Uh, with the Japanese occupation, right, uh, several anti-Japanese guerrilla... <coughs> excuse me. Several anti-Japanese guerrilla organizations formed on both the left and the right. And... Um, there was, generally speaking, I think, closer coordination uh, among those sort of left-wing organizations, right? Uh, uh, during the Japanese occupation, of course, many sort of Chinese elites end up becoming, you know, part of, you know, the puppet uh, Chinese association, right? Uh, you know, it's, again, it's not dissimilar to, to what's happening elsewhere in, in Southeast Asia, right, in, in, in Singapore, for example. Right, um, and of course, there are the as far as the Philippines more broadly is concerned, there are again prominent Filipino elites, including, including many who go on to political hold political office after the war, right, who again uh, collaborated with the with the Japanese, right. We have to again, I guess, be be mindful here about how about the problematic well the term collaboration, right, which I think many historians have sort of have sought to uh, uh, question. Um, What happens after the war, of course, is that the collaboration becomes a source of friction between the Chinese left and the Chinese right, right? Uh, The immediate period after the war, right, is, uh, you know, is a period of flourishing, relative flourishing for the the Chinese left, right? Uh, The Chinese left turns its attention following the war to two persons who had... Collaborated with the Japanese, right? And this goes back to the war itself, to the occupation itself, uh, during which the, you know, various anti-Japanese guerrilla organizations, right, assassinate, uh, the various anti-Japanese Chinese guerrilla associations, right, target and assassinate various members of the Chinese community whom they accuse of being uh, collaborators, right. After the war, what happens is that the 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 Chinese left, again uh follows through with this 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 project right of finding identifying and purging collaborators right targeting uh, many members of the chinese community who participated in organizations like the, the chinese association right the post war chinese left is also again concerned with going after uh, filipino collaborators right like uh, manuel rojas who then becomes president of the country uh, as far as we can tell, the Kuomintang is less determined to sort of root out uh, collaborators from within the Chinese community, right? Persons whom it's actually quite, you know, persons who might be party members or persons whom the, the party might be be more willing to, to uh, cultivate uh, relations with, right? Bearing in mind the need for sort of these political organizations to draw upon uh, support from uh, members of the business community. Right. Uh, And so that's a source of friction. Right. And what happens, of course, as I point out in in my in my second chapter, is that the person whom the Filipino left, including Chinese leftists, targets Manuel Rojas, then ends up becoming the first post-war president of the country. Right. yeah, and upon coming to power, Roha sort of again he turns his attention to his political enemies on the left, right, including members of the uh, including members of the Chinese community. Right, again, you know the the larger context here is, is kind of important. This is a period, of course, during which the the Hukbalahap, right, again, leftists who, you know, resisted the the Japanese, right, go from being again persons who resisted the Japanese. To begin to do, uh, to to becoming um, enemies of the post-colonial Cold War state, right? So so in part the the uh, the operation against the hooks uh, during this period is also an operation against uh, the Chinese left, and the Guomidang is more than willing to collaborate uh, <laughs> to collaborate with the uh, uh, with the Philippine state, right, in pursuit of uh, the Chinese left, right? So this is a really important period because by the end of this period, the Chinese left is more or less deinstitutionalized, right? Its key leaders, by the end of this period, have left the islands for for China, right? Uh, The Chinese Civil War is, is ongoing during this period, and, of course, the Chinese Civil War uh, is ultimately won by the by the communists. So things are looking up for these Chinese leftists in their homeland, which for many of them, they have just only left in the 1930s to to uh, to go to the Philippines. Right. So by this point, by the end of the period, right, uh, a period that the Chinese left refers to as a period of, of uh, as, a, as a white terror. Right. The Chinese left has more or less uh, its, its key institutions have been dismantled. Right. Its key leaders have left for uh, China, right, and the remaining supporters to the left uh, among the, in the Chinese community have gone uh, underground.
1: Yeah, and if I'm not wrong for the Philippine KMT, this is referred to as a period of bloody struggle as well. Um, so one of the things I'm interested in, and this is also in part because it's something that my dissertation might be looking at as well, is the nineteen 1940s really was also dubbed period in which the cold war started to gain a lot more traction and also a lot more like intensity in that period and I was wondering how did the cold war figure in the minds or the actions of the Philippine government and the KMT and specifically I was interested in whether you might term this conflict as a quote unquote cold war conflict or was it at that point in time perhaps a bit more localised uh, to, to that degree
0: Right uh, that's a great question uh, my book is, I, I mean, I am interested in sort of, you know, uh, co- uh, contributing to, to sort of Cold War studies. Uh, my, so the Philippines, of course, is a, is a, is an important battleground in, in the Southeast Asian Cold War, right? Uh, and there are, there's a lot more tension on sort of Filipino communists during this period and, and the various counterinsurgency campaigns and, and propaganda efforts against filipino communism right uh during this period um this conflict between the chinese left and the chinese right is in part a cold war conflict given how uh conservatives perceive chinese many chinese to be sort of supporters of communism uh but it's also of course uh, a function of the ongoing civil war between the the Kuomintang and and the Chinese Communist Party, right? We think of the civil wars ending in 1949, but not in the eyes of sort of uh, the Kuomintang, right? At least rhetorically, the Kuomintang was committed to counterattacking the mainland um, uh, up until you know up until the 1970s and, and 80s. So in that sense, it's it's not purely a, a Cold War conflict, right? Uh, what I argue in my in my book is that we need to think about sort of Cold War connections beyond the uh, beyond the United States, right? We need to think about Cold War anti-communism as uh, not simply a US political project in, you know, say, say Southeast Asia. And by this, I don't just mean shifting the attention to uh, local actors or to local governments, right? Which again, historians have done, but to not talk about the United States or to, to marginalize the, the United States entirely and focus on what I call intra-Asian um, anti-communist networks, right? Uh, in my case, again, these, you know, as a historian of Chinese migration, right, I, I try to demonstrate that these intra-Asian anti-communist connections were built on sort of pre-existing uh, political networks, right, built upon so sort of pre-existing ties between Asian states, uh, between Asian states, right. In this case, uh, the the networks of the of the Guomindang, right. So that is how I would think about uh, my book in relation to to Cold War scholarship.
1: So, in, after 1948, uh, as you mentioned, the Chinese left was deinstitutionalized. Most of their key leaders had left for the PRC. And of course, this was a period where the Chinese left was winning the civil war in uh, China. And of course, that meant also that the Philippine KMT also entrenched itself into the political lives of the Philippine Chinese. Given this context, it was, uh, as you write, pragmatic to be ideological and specifically then to take on the, the ideology of being anti-communist. So why was it strategic or practi- or, pragma- or pragmatic or even practical to be ideologically aligned with anti-communism? And what could one gain from being perceived as being anti-communist even if they were not actually so?
0: Sure. So <clears throat> again, one of the questions that I, I sort of had to grapple with in the course of writing my book And the dissertation was how far, right? uh, These persons who came out vocally and publicly in support of anti-communism, right, were actually true believers in the, you know, in the ideology of of anti-communism and resist Russia, right, from right. They certainly were very adept at spouting uh, certain um, approved slogans, right. Uh, I mean, ultimately, I think it's difficult for historians, no matter how much material they have, to sort of answer questions with regards to the interiority of of historical subjects, right? Um, And and that led me thinking about sort of anti-communism as more performative, as as performative as much as about uh, true and deeply held uh, ideological beliefs, right? And then it began to make sense in sort of the in, in the context of the Cold War and, and decolonization slash uh, post-colonial society, right? Uh, much like elsewhere in Southeast Asia, uh, the Philippine Chinese, again, were uh, discriminated against, right? Were a discriminated uh, minority uh, in the Philippines, right? Uh, much of how we understand uh, the uh, sort of post-colonial Chinese societies in, in Southeast Asia, right? Revolves around again questions of adaptation uh, to these to, to various anti-Chinese measures, right? Especially in countries where the Chinese happen to be a minority, right? Uh, but such you know, studies of adaptation and adjustment to sort of xenophobia and the the sort of the anti-Chinese uh, uh, establishment, right, tend not to in, in the context of Southeast Asia tend not to to talk about. Um, Political, uh, pra- political practices, ideological practices. And so that is what I talk about in, in Chapter 3 of the book, right? How performing a certain ideological identity, right? Coming out vocally in support of the of anti-communism, uh, of the Kuomintang, right? Uh, could be a means for, for, for persons to prove that despite being aliens, despite being foreign aliens, they were nonetheless... Good aliens, right? Good residents of the Philippines, even though they may have uh, been been nationals of of the Republic of China, right? And it was advantageous, right, for for persons to to perform, uh, you know, anti-communism, right, regardless of of what they actually believed, right? Uh, Anti-communist practices, as I I point out in in that chapter, could, you know, were, were, were fairly diverse, right? That uh, among such practices was was blackmail and 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 you know going up to persons and and uh, threatening the, uh, to report them to the authorities as as quote unquote communists uh if they didn't uh if they didn't pay money to the to to the blackmailer right uh you know it it was these practices were respectable but they were also in many cases quite quite shady uh they enabled persons to accumulate uh, not just not profit, not just uh, monetarily, but also to sort of uh, establish reputations for themselves, right? Ingratiate themselves uh, in the books of the Philippine military, for example, right? So it was about uh, it was about status, right? It was about the accumulation of sort of political capital, right? It was about mitigating anti-Chinese uh, Filipino anti-Chinese suspicions of of the Chinese. By performing a an ideology that transcended uh, race and culture, right, and that both states had in common.
1: Yeah, this idea of blackmailing. Uh, I, I think that's I think Shui Sheng and Edward Lim. I might be pronouncing the name wrongly, but I, I I did find that quite hilarious how they tried to blackmail and eventually kind of got done in by themselves. Uh, and you also mentioned two other uh case studies in the chapter as well. So the Philippine Chinese United Organization uh, in support anti-communist movement or the ACM as well as Antonio Chua Cruz's uh, group of operatives. So were there any broad similarities uh, other than, you know, just the performance of anti-communism uh, between these diff- three different case studies? Uh, and so in what ways did these different uh, examples kind of differ from each other?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, right? So again... What what this chapter really shows, I think, is that anti-communism isn't wasn't just something that the KMT did, right, that a lot of persons that I talk about in the chapter, right. Antonio Chua Cruz was not a member of the KMT, right. Uh, Alfonso Sisip, for example, who who spearheaded the the anti-communist movement, right, was was not a member of the, the KMT, right. Uh, you know, Shi Yisheng was, Edward Lim sort of questionably so, but um, regardless of one, one sort of party affiliation, I think what the, what the chapter demonstrates is that anti-communism was something that multiple persons from within the Chinese community, right, uh, both uh, well-respected elites such as CSIP and sort of shadier criminal types like uh, Cruz, right, uh, sort of came together on, if, if you will, Right. That uh, e- even though they, they may have distrusted each other, even, even they, they may have not had ties with each other. Right. They There's a convergence. Right. Between these different factions when it comes to how how one gets by in the, in this particular context. Right. Uh, a context, again, um, that has a lot to do with, with like, the Philippine government's ongoing uh, efforts to against the Hukbalahab uh, during this period. So various sort of. Chinese actors sort of sought to to capitalize on, on, on sort of anti-Hook sentiment, anti-communist sentiment that crested during this period to advance, you know, again, very, very different interests, right? That uh, for for Shi, for example, um, Shi wasn't a member of the business community. He was not, you know, nearly as wide, widely respected as a CSIP, right? And I, I sort of understand his anti-communism as a means of uh, pr- pursuing status and reputation uh, despite not being a member of sort of the, the mercantile uh, elite, right? Uh, I see, it, whereas for CSIP, I see I see his behavior as more uh, in keeping with sort of, you know, his efforts to, to adjust to sort of shifting political uh, dynamics in the Philippines, right? Uh, and again, the, the, where does the distinction between, you know, they're there clearly what we consider to be reputable anti-communist practices by right? publishing an article in a, in a, uh, in a news magazine, right in English, right. Signaling one's sort of ideological credentials. Uh, and then there are all the, the, the kinds of shady activities that, uh, that the likes of Cruz and, and, um, and Shishan got up to, right. There's the, uh, an, another practice I think, which, which these persons have in common is establishing institutions, right, establishing associations to lend a veneer of respectability to one's uh, oftentimes fairly shady, uh, <laughs> shady uh, enterprises, right? So that, that's how I would sort of think about these, these different case studies um, in my book, in, in chapter three in relation to each other.
1: Yeah, so I think it's quite clear from a discussion at least that the KMT was entrenched, but it wasn't hegemonic, and even in uh the Philippines in the, in the fifties there were still pockets of communism or at least like leftist thoughts that continued to persist, and in this fourth chapter you raise two case studies that of uh. Operation Chop Suey and The things Tell An, as well as that of the Sable uh, Reading Club. So maybe could you walk us through both of these case studies and kind of how you understand these to, you know, kind of be manifestation of, of communism, but also at the same time, like, uh, yeah, actually, yeah, ju- just, just that really, yeah. And also how the kind of strengthens the, re- the relationship and the cooperation between the ROC and the Philippine government.
0: Right. So chapter four is is centered on something called the Jinxiaoan, literally the sort of the case of the arrested or detained Chinese. And this involves uh, sort of around 300 Chinese being detained in a sort of a mass uh, counter operation right by the Philippine military in December 1952. It Turns out, of course, that none of these persons are actually communists, but it takes nearly a decade for, the, uh, for all of them to be cleared of any uh, wrongdoing. Uh, What happens, of course, is that in that the as I as I point out in the chapter, right, the one of the key informants, right, one of the persons who assisted the Philippine military in in compiling uh, this list of names is a person associated with an underground Chinese communist organization called the Chinese Bureau, right, a a man uh, who went by many names, but whom I refer to in in, in the book as uh, Kua Chien. So Quaichen uh, is arrested prior to December 1952. He proceeds to uh, provide the Philippine military with a list of names. Um, he's not the only informant, right, working for the for the military during this period, uh, but he contributed significantly to this list of names. Uh, and then the Philippine military proceeds to fan out across the country to arrest these uh, persons, right? So I use and and he's profiled. Uh, quite extensively in the Republic of China uh, foreign ministry records that I managed to uh, lay my hands on, right? And we, we come to learn more about sort of the, the, the Chinese communist underground uh, during this period, right? It's uh, This only, I think, reinforces what I was saying earlier about how, you know, by this point in time, the Chinese communist movement in the country had more or less ceased to exist uh, institutionally, right? And even its ties with the Balaha by this point in time had... Uh, degenerated uh, substantially, right? Uh, so that's evidence of sort of resistance, right, to sort of KMT hegemony. Uh, the other case study that I explored in the chapter, of course, has to do with a bunch of students in Cebu, right, uh, the the uh, Philippines' uh, second city, right, that, a city that also has a substantial sort of Chinese population. Uh, I talk about a bunch of high school students, again, who whom we only know about because they were arrested, right, uh who, you know, to use a contemporary term, self-radicalize, right, and and form uh, a, a grassroots uh, Marxist uh, organization, right? Uh, the kinds of, you know, it's, it's what sort of young people, uh, you know, it's what youth, uh, young people get up to, I, I guess. Uh, this organization, of course, which they sort of label at one point the Chinese Communist Party in the Philippines has no ties to the uh, Chinese Communist Party in, in China and uh, doesn't really have, have ties to sort of the, the Hub either. It's, it's an entirely sui generous uh, organization that, um, in part because of youthful inexperience, uh, ends up falling afoul of the, the authorities. Right. And so a number of persons associated with this organization uh, are are, uh, put on a plane along with Kua Qian. Right. And sent and deported to to Taiwan. Right. In 1957, if I'm I'm not mistaken. Right. Uh, So, again, this is this chapter is evidence of resistance to the to the status quo. Right. To the on, on the part of persons who considered themselves Chinese. Right. Uh, and who identified, more importantly, who identified by the state as Chinese, which is why they were deported as opposed to being prosecuted right, by uh, courts in the, the Philippines. Right? And this chapter is important in setting us up for a subsequent chapter because what I argue is that the Jinshaw An was conducted without the knowledge of the Republic of China state, without the participation of the Republic of China and without the participation of the the down right? Uh, this is alarming and troubling to the Republic of China uh, and to the local down many of whose members, right, ended up uh, being arrested. And this sets into this leads to a rectification of the the intelligence sharing uh, relationship between the two states, right? The ROC is determined from this point onwards to ensure that any future anti-communist and counterintelligence operations targeting members of the local Chinese community are channeled through the embassy, right? And involve uh, local Chinese anti-communists, right? Uh, including members of the, the KMT, right? And that's that's the significance of this chapter.
1: So, all right, let me just re-ask that question. So... Uh... Yeah, can you tell us more about the role education and the arts played in reinforcing this culture of anti-communism in the Philippines?
0: Sure. So, you know, I you know, I, I think I my book tries not to do just, just political history and, and diplomatic history. And there's actually, I think, relatively little of that. Uh, and that I think the more some of the more exciting parts of the book have to do with sort of society and culture, right? So Chinese schools in the anti in, in the Philippines were important sites of uh, ideological mobilization right by by the KMT uh, and the reasons for this again have to do with how the, the Philip schools as were, you know, private institutions which ran a dual language English and Chinese language curriculum uh, and whose Chinese curricula were you know dominated by the, the going right so Textbooks. The textbooks that Chinese students relied on were from uh, Taiwan, right? Many of their teachers were from Taiwan. Uh, many of their teachers ha- or had been trained uh, in Taiwan, right? And uh, these, you know, beyond sort of the classroom, right? These these schools were also placed you know, also the sites of anti-communist activities, right? Rallies in support of of uh, of Taiwan, right? In support of sort of the global uh, anti-communist uh, crusade right students uh, frequently traveled to Taiwan right uh, during the the 1950s 60s and, and even 70s right um or, or not just not just to Taiwan but they would you know they would travel uh within their country right uh putting on sort of uh, performances in support of of anti-communism right and all this has to do right with how, Uh, the Philippine government was quite content to let these schools be, right? And that they were, uh, even though there were efforts in the 1950s to sort of nationalize these schools and to bring them under greater sort of Philippine supervision, right? For the most part, these Chinese schools were allowed to operate fairly autonomously. And again, for all the fears of communist infiltration in these schools, uh, these schools, uh, for the most part, were were very much... um, was staunchly pro-Guomindang, right? Uh, the Guomindang and the Republic of China Embassy exercised a great deal of control uh, over these schools, right? The embassy was, for example, and, and the Guomindang were responsible for vetting uh, teachers, and the leadership of these schools overlapped considerably with the leadership of other uh, leading Chinese institutions at the time, right? Uh, including the the Philippine Chinese Anti-Communist League. Right, which frequently held activities uh, at these schools.
1: Yeah, and I think one thing that is quite interesting to me, and I think this pops up towards the end of the chapter, is this idea of transnational anti-communism. And specifically, my question is kind of, what was transnational about the anti-communism amongst the Philippine Chinese? And you know what made me curious was two events were mentioned. Um, the first was the failed Hungarian revolution of 1956, and the second one is a bit more closer to home. Liming Miu-Hawk strike down, of the leftist Chinese, uh, of the leftist trade union students and teachers uh, in Singapore?
0: Yeah, so when I say that trans-communism was transnational, I, I mean that the Philippine Chinese participated in networks of, uh, not just participated on the one hand in, in networks of anti-communist organizations that spanned Asia and, and the globe, uh, but that they also understood their their struggle, right, against the chinese communist party in in global terms so there's a sense in which they were uh, their imaginaries were were transnational or or that spanned right multiple countries right uh, so the organization in question here that i talk about in in chapter uh 5 is of course the organization that you know that i was interested in at the start of my phd the asian peoples anti communist league right uh, an organization that and I think more scholars are beginning to be interested in, right? But which has received nowhere near the amount of attention, for example, as uh, Afro Asianism, right? Uh, I mean, I would argue, or, and and persons have argued that that the organization was was a response, right, to to Bandung, right? In that it was founded, in fact, uh, just a year before the uh, the Bandung Conference, right? So this was an organization of sort of anti-communist activists from across Asia. Uh, It was an organization sponsored by Taiwan and South Korea, right? And it is an organization that the Philippine uh, Philippine Chinese anti-communists came to participate in via the Philippine Chinese Anti-Communist League, right? Uh, The occasion for this was a meeting of the Asian People's Anti-Communist League in uh, in Manila, right? Uh, An occasion that attracted, again... um, you know, Chinese anti-communist activists, right? Including Shi, for example, Shi Yishan, right? And the other way in which sort of anti-communism of, the anti-communism of Philippine Chinese was transnational was in their efforts, their understanding of what was going on elsewhere uh, in the world, right? Um, And this is, you know, this is, I think, where the, the sort of the global cold war manifests itself uh, most most explicitly, right? In my in my book, right, and th- in that these persons were very conscious of what was going on elsewhere, right? In, in Singapore, for example, with 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 Lim Hawk, right, Lim Hawk's uh, uh, operations against the uh, against the left, right, uh, in in uh, and and even and even in in Eastern Europe, right. So the that particular moment that I examine in chapter five has to do with with uh, the Hungarian the Hungarian Revolution right the Hungarian uh, uprising against communist rule in Hungary which becomes a global event in the eyes of you know these uh in the imaginaries of these anti-communists right so I, I talk about how uh a couple of these Hungarians end up in the Philippines speaking to Philippine Chinese, uh, students, uh, you know, having just spent time in in Taiwan, right, and they they arrive in the Philippines from Taiwan, right. Uh, they have a lot of nice things to say about Taiwan, which of course means a lot to the Kuomintang regime in in Taiwan. Uh, and Philippine Chinese students, right, are made to attend such events, right, to drive home the, you know. The idea that their that their struggle, that the ideological struggle of the Kuomintang, is part of a much larger uh, conflict.
1: This idea of mobility is also something that you pick up on in chapter six, where you you know talk about the visits by the Philippine Chinese to Taiwan, and you know that this is you know it's not just a casual holiday. Uh they were also one way in which the KMT contested with the PRC for overseas Chinese capital, uh, remittances as well as bodies during a cold war. There was one way in which the ROC projected Taiwan to the world as more than just a province of the ROC. So the question that I have here is, what does a visit to Taiwan until, uh, what goes into its organization, and what kind of visits were there? Because you discussed three different visits, and they all are quite different from each other.
0: Right. So these, as you pointed out, these were not visits by individuals. These, these were not people going there for, for a holiday, right? It was not easy to, uh, uh, to get into Taiwan. Right uh, at the time, right. And so these visits were organized by uh, by institutions in the Philippines, right? Uh, institutions ranging from schools to the uh, to the, the the anti-communist league, right? To to veterans' associations, right? Organized with the support of the Philippine embassy, right? So these were organized group visits with a fixed itinerary, right? uh and that tended to be centered on right uh tended to be centered on certain places in Taiwan that could showcase sort of the progress of the Republic of China, right to the to the wider world, right or that could showcase the Republic of China's ongoing uh, efforts to combat communism, right to fight back against communism to the rest of the world. So for example uh the offshore island, uh, island chain of Kimoy or Jinmen was a frequent uh tourist <laughs> well it was a frequent destination right it was a frequent uh destination on the itineraries of these of these Philippine Chinese tourists right because this, this island was literally quite literally at the front lines of the ongoing civil war between the uh, between the two Chinas. Right? Uh, but people visited for all sorts of reasons, right? People, uh, persons could visit for the purposes of uh, what, what, what the what's called uh, military service or junjung fu right? Uh, Philippine Chinese elites frequently visited to celebrate uh, certain uh, important national occasions in uh, the Republic of China, right? Uh, from the so-called this is the, the founding of the the Republic of China, uh, the Republic of China's National Day on on October tenth, right? To Chiang Kai-shek's birthday, which happened to be later uh that month right and persons were there for all sorts of more um practical reasons like uh teacher training for example they were they would go there during the during the summer vacations uh for teacher training they would go there to perform um what we might call community service right they would go around to rural areas and 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 help literally build the nation right they would donate money to help uh rural reconstruction in, in Taiwan, for example. So in all these ways, and these trips, these trips were valuable to the Republic of China because it, it sought to demonstrate that the uh that the Rump regime on Taiwan had the support of its own nationals, right, uh, beyond just the the island of Taiwan itself. They it could point to these multiple overseas Chinese delegations that were visiting the country, uh, and, and that affirmed. Uh, their their commitment to the to the Republic of China cause, right, um, a state that did not have sovereignty or territorial sovereignty over the over the mainland had to turn to other means to legitimize itself as a as a Chinese nation state, right, in in the world, and, and that's where these trips come in, right, uh, trips that were carefully managed to ensure that the Republic of China came across in the in an extremely positive light. Right, but which again serves certain uh, purposes, uh, more practical purposes, uh, from the perspective of the Philippine Chinese themselves.
1: And even when the Philippine Chinese visited Taiwan, you know it was never described as you note as home or as jia, but was instead described variously as you know Ziyou Zhongguo, Zhuguo, or Zhongguo. Uh, Why is that, and what can this tell us about how the Philippine Chinese saw Taiwan, mainland China, and their relationship to both of these geographic spaces?
0: Yeah, so what Taiwan or what the regime on Taiwan tries to do discursively after 1949 is to uh, reinvent itself as, well, officially, of course, Taiwan was simply a province of the Republic of China, right? That Republic of China, of course, uh, had was no longer in control of uh, what it called the mainland, right? Uh, but which is which was nonetheless the the legitimate sovereign authority of all of, of China of which Taiwan was simply a a province. Uh, but that that because that sort of narrow legal conception of Taiwan as simply a province of the Republic of China exists coexists with a a slightly more ambiguous uh, conception of Taiwan as free China right 自有中國, a uh, uh, again a very very much a cold War, framing of this particular part of the republic of china right and so the idea was that even even though philippine chinese would have chased their ancestry to not to the island of taiwan itself but to you know fujian province right uh, currently under occupied currently occupied by an illegitimate bandit regime right that even though the their, their actual ancestral homelands were located uh Beyond the iron curtain or beyond the the bamboo curtain, they could nonetheless they nonetheless could and should identify with Taiwan, right as uh, as something called Free China, right as the 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 bas- as a bastion of uh, anti-communist resistance uh, to to communism uh, and as a as the legitimate representative of the nation-state that they should be be loyal to and supportive of.
1: I now want to return back to this idea of resistance which you covered in your last chapter about the Chinese commercial news affair, Uh, and one of the things that fascinated me about this affair was that uh, the Chinese commercial news or the CCN, they, they weren't overtly pro-communist. They were in my reading at these, you know, just journalists trying to maintain political neutrality as well as journalistic objectivity. Yet, because of the actions of the Philippine KMT in, you know, effectively shifting the Overton window towards the right, even neutrality became spotlighted as pro-communist, especially when the CCN's call for hybridization appeared to undermine the ethnocentrism of the KMT, uh, which you mentioned earlier. And from this, I have kind of Two related questions, and I'll ask the first one first, which is what were the allowable means of dissent in the status quo um, at a point in time? So we know that communism was definitely not allowed, right? And you refer to this idea of anti-anti-communism or non-anti-communism. What did that look like?
0: Yeah, so uh so the Chinese commercial news is a was a newspaper, was a was a by all for all intents and purposes, a liberal centrist newspaper. Right? that was committed to providing <laughs> fair and balanced coverage of of news on China right and and that was determined to feature news on China from multiple news sources right including uh not only including the the, the Republic of China's official news service uh but from international uh, news outlets as well and this gets the newspaper into trouble with the KMT right an organization uh, an organization Uh, that was committed, again, to outputting right-wing anti-communist propaganda uh, during this period, a a newspaper that actually had two other uh, news—a party that actually controlled two other newspapers, two of the four Chinese newspapers in in the Philippines uh, at the time, right? So this is unacceptable to the uh, the KMT, right? This is unacceptable uh, to the Republic of China embassy uh, as well, right? The, the CCN is also very much uh, an advocate of cultural integration, right? Its its strategy, it's, its tactics, right? If we think of sort of anti-communism, the hegemonic anti-communism as a series of strategies, to use uh, Michel de Soto's term, then these tactics which contest the ideological status quo, right, uh, take the form of, for example, in the case of the Chinese Commercial News, questioning the sinocentric and ethnocentric ideology of the Party by advocating uh, for uh, cultural integration, right? By advocating for for naturalization, right? Uh, this is not again. This is not support for communism, right? Uh, this is very much. This is liberalism in opposition to to anti-communism. Right or liberal, uh, liberal centrist, liberal multiculturalism, right in, in opposition to right wing anti communism, and of course as you pointed out, right given the Overton window uh, at the time and within the Chinese uh, discursive sphere in the Philippines, this ends up being being problematic, right? But so this Chinese commercial use was a major source of anti anti communism, right? Because of course it would it would not have been, uh, it would it would have been suicidal. Uh, oh. To sort of come out vocally in support of communism, right? But of course, ironically, <laughs> they were right constructed as as pro-communist,
1: and that kind of led them to be deported by President Marcos uh, in the in the early nineteen seventies. As a result, so I guess from here, I guess the question I kind of had, and this is the second question, is you know. How is this, or how might we understand this as, well as, as an example of shared sovereignty? Because I think this is one area where it becomes really, you really see, I think, the cooperation between the Philippine government as well as the ROC as well.
0: Yeah, so the I was fortunate, again, in my archival research to come across uh, quite a lot of material from the Republic of China side uh, on the Yudong affair, right? Material that I, I don't believe... Uh, scholars uh have have actually looked at right and 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 these materials I think document the the collaborative relationship between various uh organizations right and entities in opposition to the Chinese commercial news right it's 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 a conspiracy right uh it's it's actually a, a conspiracy behind the scenes conspiracy uh against this against this newspaper right uh the philippine military spearheads the operation uh francis operation right but the guoming and the ROC embassy play a crucial behind the scenes role because the philippine military and this is something that applies to sort of more broadly to my book doesn't know chinese it doesn't have chinese persons uh, on its payroll who can speak chinese so in effect it has to outsource right part of its counterintelligence operations to uh to persons who do know Chinese, right? Of course, the, the Philippine, uh, the, the ROC embassy and Gomingang activists, right, are more than willing to to play this role, right? And so this is how the this is how sovereignty is is shared, right? Uh in the course of the the deportation board hearings, not just in 1962, but but also in 1970, right, uh the, the KMT also pro- you know provides key witnesses right, to appear at these hearings and to interpret certain documents in a certain way so as to cast uh, the the Chinese news, the, the Chinese commercial news as a pro-communist outlet. Uh, I should mention here that these are deportation board hearings right they are not uh, hearings before a, a judicial uh, entity a formal judicial entity given that the the persons in question are foreign nationals. And what you need to know about these deportation board hearings is that um, you don't need, uh, the the bar isn't especially high uh, when it comes to, to evidence, right? You don't need to prove conclusively uh, that these persons are pro-communist, right? It's, it is enough for one to prove that these persons are undesirable, whatever that means, right, for them to be deported. So deportation uh, is is very much a, a political process right uh, and and that's the reason why Marcos in in 1970 can sort of cut short these hearings by ordering uh, the Yuitongs to be to be deported uh, to Taiwan because deportation is is, is an executive decision right?
1: And it's interesting as well because you know after this uh, the, the affair, uh, the shared sovereignty arrangement between ROC and Manila kind of unraveled in the 70s. You know, shortly after this affair. So I was wondering, could maybe share with us, you know, what led uh, to the unraveling of the shared sovereignty arrangement.
0: Sure. Um. Arguably, I think this this arrangement doesn't uh, isn't over until the the mid nineteen nineties. But I, I certainly think that the uh, early to mid nineteen seventies is an important turning point. Uh. So what happens, of course, is that the Uyghurs are deported to Taiwan, right in May nineteen seventy. And you know, uh, Filipino journalists who've written about this case have argued that Marcos was essentially using this to, to prepare the way for martial law, right? Which of course is declared uh, a couple years later, right? We, this, is, we, this year is the 50th anniversary of the declaration of martial law, right? Ironically, <laughs> under martial law, uh, Marcos is able to, well, he's able to, he issues executive orders, right? Uh, facilitating the, nat- the mass naturalization of uh, foreign aliens, right? Uh, in other words, he he by executive fiat, he, he undermines a key pillar of the Kuomintang's hegemony in, in the Philippines by making it much easier for local Chinese to become Filipino citizens. And a lot of them uh, do end up becoming Filipino citizens, which I think goes to show you uh, just how far... Uh, Persons identified with the Philippines, as opposed to, uh, as opposed to the Republic of China. So, so that's one thing Marcos does, and he does that in preparation for normalizing relations, diplomatic relations between China and the uh, between the People's Republic of China and the the Philippines. And this happens in uh, 1975, right? Uh, and so not only does the is the Kuomintang less able to to mobilize uh, uh, persons of Chinese descent, uh, it now no longer has a formal Diplomatic presence in the the Philippines, right? From from 1975 onwards. Right. It uh, Marcos also engage, uh, nationalizes Chinese schools, right? Again, helping to sort of weaken uh down influence uh in the Philippines. So this is all really crucial, although uh and, and this book, you know, the sequel to this book remains to be to be written. Um, it's pretty clear that this process, that this decline, this this decomposition, right, is is pretty slow, and it's not really until the mid nineteen nineties that the uh, that the community has shifted fully over to to supporting uh, the People's Republic of China, or to, or to having uh, closer ties with the with the People's Republic of China.
1: And I think that brings us quite nicely, I think, to the conclusion and. You know, here the question I really had before we get to the discussion on contribution to scholarship really is, you know, what happened to the Philippine KMT, and what are some of the legacies of the KMT's code warring in the Philippines today?
0: Yeah, what happens to the Philippine KMT? Well, I mean, during martial law, it's two newspaper, it's two newspapers, right? Cease to function. Uh, they they are merged and sort of forced to to tone down on their their pro uh, on their pro KMT uh, activities. Uh, the various sort of ROC diplomatic organs in the Philippines sort of get converted into sort of informal uh, diplomatic organs, right? The KMT itself uh, is, is renamed the, the Filipino-Chinese Cultural and Economic Association, right? Uh, schools, again, are, are no longer able to uh, promote KMT ideology as openly as before, and crucially, right, the uh, the Filipino-Chinese Chamber of Commerce, right, Uh which was a very pro-KMT organization, right? Uh, splinters between sort of pro-KMT and pro, uh, pro-China pro uh, factions, right? Uh, and these, you know, again, these these buildings, these institutions still still exist today, right? One can visit the site of the former KMT headquarters in, in Manila's Chinatown, right? Uh, these days, of course, uh, you know, the, the KMT has a presence in the Philippines, but it's, you know, it's fairly marginal, right? Uh, and that and that Chinese schools, including Chiang Kai Shek College, right, have become uh, well. I wouldn't say pro CCP, but but they certainly they certainly no longer are, are ideologically committed to promoting uh, the interests of a a foreign uh, a foreign China, right? They've become a lot more Philippinized, um in the decade since.
1: Now, looking past um, the Philippines and the KMT, uh, I would like to talk a little bit about kind of the way you frame your contributions to the scholarship. Uh, because I have um, on more than one occasion now cited this text in my papers for classes. Um, so this is not by any means a comparative history, although you do make you know extensive comparisons throughout Southeast Asia and you make use of comparative concepts as well. You know, this is also not a Chinese history as we might conventionally understand it within the landmass mm. of what I'm gonna refer to as geographic China. It is, as you point out, a work of global Chinese history, one that you know is not the same thing as what Shelley Chan is doing because you focus less on how the Chinese diaspora affected China, but also on how the diaspora's literary and cultural productions took place outside of geographic China as well. And towards the end, you take inspiration from Sinophone studies, which has mostly been dominated by cultural studies and literary studies, and you gesture towards this possibility of a Sinophone history. So that's kind of a concluding question. uh, In your mind, what does a Sinophone history entail? And is this something you're thinking about for your next project?
0: Yeah, thanks for that. Uh Yeah, so I guess I I, I don't see the book as you know, sort of Chinese history as it's conventionally understood within within area studies. Uh although I am writing about ironically I am writing about an organization that very much saw itself as as uh a, a committed to the to the future uh, uh to actualizing a, the modern nation state of of China, right? Uh I, you know, I like to think of myself as a as a historian working on how China and Chinese ness are understood and constructed in sort of various settings, right? Uh, one of the things that I hope to do in the book is to call attention again to different uh, understandings of China and how persons from beyond what you call geographic China. Right, have constructed a certain understanding of China, right, in in specific uh, circumstances, right, and I, I think that's well. In part, I think that's a direction that Chinese studies is moving in, right, with with Sinophone studies, which, as you as you pointed out, I think is very much focused on literary and cultural production, right. Uh, I'm hoping that this turn will continue, and I, and I think in part it will because of. China itself archives in China itself are are becoming more difficult to access, right? Even as archives in Taiwan, right, are becoming easier to access. Even as scholars, I think, are becoming much more aware of the wealth of Chinese language materials outside uh, China and, and even Taiwan, right, in places like Singapore. But but as I you know, as my book shows, right, in in the Philippines as well, right. And so I hope that this is this will contribute in a small way to to getting us to think uh beyond, right? Getting historians to think beyond China, right? Beyond 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 geographic China. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean I just think I guess you could say that that Chinese, right, is, is something that we that we need to think about mm-hmm. as well. Right. There's uh there's a sense in which or oh, at least in the case in, in Sinophone studies. So Sinophone studies again, depending on which faction of Sinophone studies scholars you you approach, Sinophone studies either includes the PRC or it doesn't include the PRC, right? Uh, my my I think my my understanding uh, of it, or, or my hope is that this this field is, could, you know, does move in a more ecumenical, uh direction and does sort of think about uh, China in relation. To the to the to the rest of the Chinese speaking world without necessarily centering China, or rather by by thinking about how uh, China is is uh, th- this idea of a center is is constructed, right? So Taiwan was a center, right? In the eyes of the down right? Uh, there's literally a a map that I uh, that I came across showing um, lines radiating outwards from the from Taiwan. The island of Taiwan itself, uh to, to different parts of the world where there happened to be to be Chinese communities, right? Uh, I mean, the, the Philippines, again, the Philippine-Chinese community was itself sort of a of a of a of a center. If you, if you think about you know, what it means to what it means for something to be to be a center, right? Uh so that's again, I think something that I, I'm trying to do, right? Which is to think about the constructiveness of Chineseness and to think about how uh, politics and ideology inform our understanding of Chineseness. Uh, There's a sense in which we understand Chineseness in in relation solely to ethnicity and culture, right? There's a sense in which studies of Chinese in in sort of a post-colonial setting tend to emphasize um, localization and uh, indigenization, right? But uh, especially in the case, for example, of Malaya, uh, but I would say, you know, in, in in my case, this process of indigenization and localization, right, in, involves, ironically, embracing or, or pretending to embrace a state that is referred to itself as as China, right? So again, Chinese does in the context of the Cold War. Uh, I'm not the first person to to say this, right? I think it has to be understood in relation to uh, the. Sort of larger geopolitical concerns. Okay. Oh, and you had a question about <laughs> hey, where where uh, where where I'm going next. Yeah, so uh, I was fortunate enough to receive some funding from the Singapore government to work on a uh, a book. Presumably, if I ever get around to writing it, a book on what I like to tell people at this point in time is a cultural history of relations between Singapore, China, and Taiwan in the seventies and and eighties. So again, this is like the first book. This is a book that does not presume to do very much diplomatic history. Right. Uh, it did not, it does not presume to think about, uh, to focus too much on, you know, visits, high level visits between, between these two countries. Uh, and then what I'm really trying to do in this country is to look at how ordinary Singaporeans, right. Uh, came to understand China, uh, during this period. Right. I'm interested in, in, in sort of cultural flows and, and connections that operated in, in multiple directions, how uh the the PRC or persons from the PRC were themselves uh during this period be interested and, and become became increasingly interested in, in in Singapore. Right. I'm interested not only in I'm interested in sort of how knowledge right, is is produced uh by Singaporeans about China, right? By Singaporeans about Taiwan, by Taiwan, uh, by persons in Taiwan about about Singapore, and by persons in in, in China, right? By intellectuals and uh, in China uh, about Singapore, um, and so I'm you know I'm I'm sort of trying to cast my net pretty wide at this point in time. I'm looking at uh, sort of intellectual exchanges. Uh, I'm looking at debate, uh, Chinese language debate competitions. I'm looking at sort of Taiwanese. Um, Taiwanese pop music, and it's sort of its its influence on, on sort of uh, 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 Singaporean Chinese folk songs during the 1980s. Um, I'm not quite sure again how to assemble uh, all these elements into a single coherent narrative, but I think hopefully that will that will come with time uh, and and more research. Uh, yeah, so that's that's what I'm looking at, right? I think the 70s and 80s is is a really exciting period. Uh, to be working on it's a period that does not lend itself, I think to to uh, to archival research uh, given that or uh, well, certainly not in in China and certainly not in, in Singapore, given that you know archives from that period uh, either don't exist or, or or simply aren't accessible. but there's a great deal of sort of printed material out there, uh, including material at my own university library that no one pretty much pretty much no one has looked at, right if you, if you think about the Singaporean history and so much of it i think with regards to the chinese community is about the 50s and, and 60s right it's about the the struggle uh, the the anti-colonial struggle uh, but what happens afterwards right um it isn't it isn't i think just a story about the the state seeking to manage chinese society in in this country right it's about uh representatives of the Chinese community in this in this country sort of understanding you know thinking about themselves within sort of the the wider uh side world and you know hopefully that will that will come across in in the book uh that I will hopefully eventually write and, and get published
1: <laughs> yeah if we, if we get to the book uh genuinely I would love to read it uh, especially the part about Taiwanese pop music because that's kind of a guilty pleasure of mine. Uh, <laughs> yeah, thank, you. thank you very much, Dr. Kung, for joining us today. Uh, this has been a great conversation. I've really learned a lot uh, from you as well as about the writing process for Diasporic code Warriors.
0: Thank you so much, Ben. It was my pleasure to be be here.